Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and it's November 2019. And today, we've got two topics. Second topic is on Reboa. You heard Matt Martin just a couple months ago talk about partial Reboa, intermittent Reboa, the new catheters. How do we do this? Well, we've got so many emails from that episode, such good stuff. And I've got Zaf Kossum, Austin Johnson to come back and clarify some stuff, talk about some controversies with all of this, talk about what's the latest and greatest. So you'll hear them in just a second. But before we get there, topic number one, last month, the first U.S. pre-hospital eCPR program was established. You heard this from, from John Marinera as well as Darren Brody out at the University of Mexico in Albuquerque. Well, the day after we published that, they had their first case. And here's John and Darren to tell us all about it. So essentially what happened um, was there was a, uh, one of our doctors, Dr. Detmer, uh, was actually at the Albuquerque Fire Rescue 3 station doing the pre-hospital echo training uh, with the firefighters. And the call came down that there was person outside of our 35 minutes to get back to University Hospital ring, so this is a person that ECMO would not have been offered to, uh, who was in full arrest, who met all of our other criteria, and so uh, Dr. Uh, Detmer activated, and again, he was right there, our wonderful ECMO specialist, brought the uh, hand crank circuit to the corner, and he picked him up. I was in private vehicle after just dropping my kids off at school, and ran across town, and uh, we got there. I got there just about 10 minutes before, and the patient um, had been uh, called 911 themselves, and the patient TEA arrested in front of the firefighters who immediately uh, started CPR and obviously activated the eCPR. So they were in the back of their uh, Albuquerque ambulance doing uh, the ACLS. They were on their fourth round of ACLS, when Dr. Detmer showed up in the uh, ECMO-1, our Albuquerque Fire Rescue ECPR vehicle, we immediately unloaded the patient from Albuquerque Ambulance and put them into Albuquerque Fire Rescue, where Dr. Detmer and I proceeded to cannulate the person percutaneously. And it took us uh, 58 minutes, 58 minutes from the time of arrest to being on ECMO in the field. Hand cranking worked uh, spectacularly, and the person is uh, currently at University Hospital getting stabilized. Okay. All right. So we too soon to know. We had some, uh, I mean, it sounded like it went, for the first one, it sounded like it went amazingly well. I would say so. But if Darren, you were kind of a little bit more uh, back from it. What did you see? Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, first of all, the team, I just can't tell you how well the team did. There are so many moving parts uh, to this. And, you know, everybody just stepped in. I, I can see us eventually streamlining the number of people involved, but we had a lot of folks there and everybody was doing something. So from the tailboard, you know, on our end, we're managing the resuscitation, we're starting an epi drip, we're giving volume, we're giving heparin, we're trying to run around and help troubleshoot and, you know, hand things to these guys when they needed it. Um, you know, we ran low on oxygen. We were there long enough, and we had to kind of scramble and get some oxygen off of other units. Um, so there was a lot of people doing a lot of things, um, and everybody just did an amazing job. But it is uh, definitely a lot of orchestration happening. I think we were able to keep the, the guys in the back, Todd and John, just focused on what they're supposed to be focused on. So that, And then we just 
you know, ran everything else. All right, so cool. U.S. pre-hospital eCPR, Darren Brody and, and John Marinette, so cool. Uh, we'll hear more from them in the upcoming months for sure. Uh, but let's move on. Part two of this podcast is about Reboa, and we have Zaf and Austin. They're going to talk to us about partial Reboa and a little bit about what the latest and greatest is. Um, I think from a, probably the biggest thing from a uh, general use of Reboa aspect is that we just came out with a new joint statement, which, uh, as you remember, uh, about a year and a half ago, a joint statement came out between ASEP and the American College of Surgeons which, to say the least, created a lot of animosity um, amongst uh, a lot of folk because there was a big limitation there that uh, if you are an EM physician without critical care training, you should not be putting in Reboa. And the whole feeling was that there was um, perhaps not as much thought uh, had been put into getting that first statement out. Uh, kudos to both ASEP and uh, the ACS because they took uh, a lot of that feedback to heart and uh, um, decided that they would revisit the evidence, revisit the topic. And uh, I got invited to the table, which was pretty cool um, to uh, be representing uh, ASEP um, at uh, at this meeting. We also had members from uh, the uh, National Association of uh, Emergency uh, um, or EMS Physicians and the National Association of EMTs as well at the table. So we met in Chicago over the summer, um, went through the latest evidence and came up with a new joint statement that just came out um, a, a few uh, weeks ago um, that has uh, been much more progressive, I feel, um, b- from the last one, mainly being uh, more inclusive of uh, of people who can put in Reboa, focusing on people who are appropriately trained. And uh, this is something I always harp on, that they have to be in the right system to support a patient that can get Reboa, meaning that there has to be a means to get these people rapidly to definitive care. That, I mean, just overall, that is such a huge accomplishment. I don't even know how you did this. I remember how fired up we got when this thing first came out. And, yeah. uh, and we're like, what's going on? Like, how can this, how can ASAP say this? And you to, to not only get at the table, but to basically change the whole thing back around is, is unbelievable. So mad kudos. Thank you so much for what you did for all of us in the emergency, all emergency physicians who now have, uh, you know, a scope to be able to do this. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really a, a, a big, uh, group effort and I was honored to be a part of it. Uh, but I agree. Yeah. It's, uh, it certainly has, uh, turned the tables on that previous statement and, uh, has been a lot more inclusive. So hopefully that'll be the basis for uh, a lot more clinical use and importantly, a lot more research use, which is what we sorely need on this. Okay. So the verbiage on that statement is critical, right? Now it is appropriately mm-hmm. trained physician. Mm-hmm. And it needs to have, and it's it's kind of linked in there with the definitive therapy, easily accessible, or, or something to that regard. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, anybody who's uh, involved in the resuscitation of a hemorrhaging patient who's been trained to do Reboa and has um, reasonably rapid access to uh, uh, surgical intervention um, can put this in, and so that's uh, the general kind of gist of uh of the verbiage now okay all right so let's get into this whole this whole thing that we talked about with matt because i thought this was super fascinating when i was reading these articles intermittent reboa 
is is this the way to go? Is partial Reboa the way to go? Do we need the new catheters? Can you guys speak to this for me? Yeah, I can. I can, I can speak. I mean, obviously, um, I'm going to start off by saying I have some bias, and I think it's important for me to let people know that. You know, I've spent, I've done a lot of the work over the last several years defining what partial Reboa is, how to do it, um, writing a lot of the translational work, um, and kind of defining uh, both what we think are acceptable flows as well as just what you can do to today with current devi- devices to get partial flow. Um, I also do uh, a lot of large animal translational work and there's a bunch of stuff that we actually have under review right now that hopefully is going to, um, shed a little bit of light on this as well. But, um, you know, I would, I would say a few things. One is, uh, if you are in a facility where you need more time, the first and most important thing is it, this is going to become a, a big, big team sport. This is not easy. Whether or not you choose intermittent or whether or not you choose partial, you're pushing your uh, duration of occlusion longer than what is currently recommended within the best course. Uh, and so if you're by yourself, and I think this really goes, you know, what Zach just said, like you you need to be in a facility where everybody is on board to, to make this happen. Now, in terms of you know, if I had to say which one is, um, which one can be done, um, I, you know, Dr. Martin made a lot of great points, uh, on the, on the episode, but he also said a few things that I, I would actually, you know, I would, I think I might take, I feel differently about. And one is he said, it's, it's impossible to do partial, uh, with current devices. And I, I actually don't think that's true. Um, we've done it over and over again in large animal studies where we do partial flow, uh, for prolonged periods of time. Uh, with, and I'll, I'll be honest, with very large animals that really, you know, replicate human physiology. So 75 kilo animals. And we're able to get, um, partial flow. We're able to, we say that we shoot for a flow of like 10% of native aortic flow. So that's like 300 to 500. We've pushed out our attempts to 90 minutes with that. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but even using a current ER above catheter, we, we've been able to do it. Um, and I would say, Choosing partial versus intermittent, while intermittent may be easier to do, inflate, deflate the balloon. Um, when we do this, we see just profound hemodynamic changes, right? So unlike what, what Dr. Martin has shown in his papers, where they sometimes get a little bit of clot stabilization and they get kind of a, they get into a sweet spot with their intermittent. Um, when we use really large animals, uh, we don't see this. So we've tried to replicate a lot of his work and we get very different results. He uses pretty small animals. Um, in most of his publications, uh, and that may be part of it. Um, but we see these profound swings in blood pressure where you go from, you know, a a map of 150 to a map of 30 within seconds. And so if you imagine, depending on what situation you're in, if you have a multi-trauma patient with a traumatic brain injury, potentially, you know, I don't think there's anything you could possibly doing worse for the patient than these profound swings and blood pressure. We, we can get it. I'm not saying partial is easy, but we've been able to certainly do partial um, and get a bit smoother blood pressure um, than, than we do with intermittent. So in terms of like if you were faced with doing this today, um, I think you got to look at the patient in front of you. I think if you have a patient with polytrauma, you think that patient might have a traumatic brain injury. I think intermittent is – I think it's – I mean, I, I think it's probably – I'd be very, very cautious about doing it. Um, okay, so Austin, let me let me just interrupt there for a second. Yeah. So let me yeah. make sure that I understand what you're saying. 
The first discussion is whether we should do partial or intermittent. The downside of doing intermittent is that the blood pressure swings heavily and that you could correct that potentially with using partial Reboa. You're saying that in contrast to what Matt was saying, that you can do that with the current catheters and that you can get this, you can avoid these wide swings so that you're avoiding this deleterious effect on the brain. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I, I am. And, and actually, I would say that when you're, if you're doing it like in real time and like you're, you're going to get some little bit, of, you know, it's almost like a combination of the two, right? You're going to come down on the balloon a little bit. And I will make a very strong, I'm, I'm a big opinion, but I think you do your user distal pressure. And actually, and there is a very strong correlation between distal pressure and flow. And I know that Matt said it wasn't there. But even if you look at his own data, his own data demonstrates that you have a very strong correlation between distal pressure and flow. So you come down a little bit based on your distal pressure, and you may have to come back up, right? You might be doing intermittent within partial. Um, but I think that as a much safer way to go from a hemodynamic standpoint in your polytrauma patient. Um, yes. And I've done this with, and I've done this in a, you know, a 75 kilo animal that is, has a severe, profound, you know, injury and done it with an ER revoke catheter. I'm not saying it's easy to do, um, but it's possible. Okay. So 2019, we don't have any of these, you know, new catheters. Maybe they'll offer some benefit. We're still to see. We're still talking totally about animal data. And when we talked with Matt, we did sort of bring that up, that these animals might not really replicate what uh, a human is. But what you're saying, Austin, is that in at least at least theoretically, that we could be able to titrate the lower extremity blood pressure uh, arterial tracings to some sort of idea of getting a reasonable partial Reboa. Yeah, and what we're and I agree with Matt that it's you you have a very sharp inflection point, right? And we've we've published on this multiple times, um, and we talk about we repeatedly talk about this very sharp inflection point. But before you hit that inflection point, you you come off the wall a little bit and you get some distal flow past it, um, and and so you're shooting for just bringing that distal blood pressure up five to 10 millimeters of mercury, right? You, you really are shooting for this little bit um, of flow. And, and if you're careful, uh, you, you can do it. Um, and you, but it's dynamic. It is, does not mean that the surgeon who's operating is also manipulating that balloon catheter, right? I mean, I think that is, and it, it doesn't matter if you're doing partial or you're doing intermittent. It, you've got to have a, a person who's dedicated to, to manipulating that balloon if you're, trying, if you're trying to do this, right? This is not a set it and forget it type of thing. Um, so, and I, you know, I don't know about the new, you know, the new dual balloon catheters or anything like that. So I can't speak to them, um, other than, uh, and I, and I haven't used them. Uh, so I don't know if they're, if they're going to be better. I'll be honest. Okay. If I look at Matt's data around that dual balloon catheter though, I'm not sure it's any better. There's still an inflection point. He says there's a, a nice relationship in, uh, inflation volume and flow. But if you look at it, it's a third order polynomial relationship that, you know, for me, I'm not sure I can, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'd be able to take advantage of that, you know? Um, so okay. I still think that you can use your distal pressure. Um, and you just want to bring it up a little bit and give yourself that little bit of flow and then see how the patient responds, right? I mean, that's the beauty of having someone active at the balloon is if the patient's tolerating it well, you can and you've got blood products then you know give give that patient a little bit more flow and see how they do and if it's not working then you come back down on it so 
you know, I think it's something where you're going to need to have your anesthesiologist who's working the resuscitation, you have your surgeon or your interventionist who's dealing with your, you know, obtaining your definitive hemorrhage control. And then you've got someone else who's, who's manipulating the catheter. All right, cool. Hey, so, Austin, so, Zaf, uh, Zaf, yeah, what do you, what's your opinion on all of this? Yeah, I had a question for Austin actually because I think uh, I remember this coming up at the um, at the uh, joint statement meeting in Chicago that we were talking about partial Reboa and the animal models. And my question to you is, uh, my understanding from and this could be wrong is that the animals that uh, that you use, the pigs that you use have this collateral circulation that may kind of uh, affect the uh, flow characteristics when a balloon is up and there's still flow that's out with the aorta to the uh, distal extremities. Um, and so, you know, how, given that, and it, 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 A, is that true? And B, if that's the case, then how clear are we on the data that we're getting from these animal models that we can apply to humans? I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, we, we don't see, if you're a full occlusion in a, in an animal, you don't see pulsatile flow, but there's a distal pressure. Um, I think if you look at, um, there are publications even in, in humans who have gone, we've gotten patients through the scanner and even pay, you know, humans have collateral flow distal to the balloon as well. Um, and we can post that, uh, Zach in the, in the show notes. Um, so, um, I mean, the, I think what I would say is the pig is the best model that we have right now. I'm not sure they have any, you know, it's not like they have a drastically different vasculature than, you know, than humans do. You know, it's not like they have some big, big, large bypass or something like that. So um, I think it is, it is what, you know, the, the model is what it is. Uh, and it's what, it's the best we can use right now when we are trying to translate. I mean, that's what, you know, it's translational research, right? It's let's build the best model that we can and see if we can somehow inform the next decision someone has to make clinically. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think uh, going back to Zach's question, you know, I, I'm much more in the uh, in the clinical use of Robo as opposed to the lab. I'll leave that to smarter folk like Austin to kind of get it. But I think, you know, we have to figure out a way to to be able to do this. And I think a great point that Austin made is that, um, you know, this, the peri procedure, perioperative management of this balloon is critical and we need to engage, um, people other than the surgeon to manage that. And that whether that's the anesthesiologist or the intensivist who can do that, that, to, to manipulate the balloon, because even in the hospital, I think, you know, having looked at cases, even at level one trauma centers where you're rapidly, quote unquote, getting people to the operating room, the time that goes, you know, the time just flies. And so, you know, the, having them completely occluded for that longer time period, um, and we say, you know, in the paper, like 30 minutes for zone one, and some people say you can tolerate for longer. But the point is that probably beyond the 30 minute mark, you are getting a fair amount of ischemic burden. That's, uh, um, that's challenging to manage later on. There has to be a way to do it. Um, I've always felt, you know, listening to folk like Joe DeBose using his technique of, of partial seemed to be the best way forward, giving the current, uh, catheter devices. But, um, and that's kind of, kind of what I've adopted for my own practice. Um, 
But I think that the uh, the interesting thing comes when we are talking to uh, the folk who are doing this pre-hospital in in London and Paris and and how they're gonna manipulate this safely to get these folks who are with much longer transport times to definitive care and that's the that's the real interesting question so Zaf, what are they doing uh so they've been looking at uh, a, a bunch of different things in fact austin's been out there they've come out to austin's lab to kind of look at ways to to uh, manage this and whether this can be managed uh, using uh, the electronic system and a more modulated control of the balloon. They are really, really worried about this because they're, you know, especially as they move to use in zone one, um, which they haven't been doing up until now, they want to see the best way to be able to mitigate the ischemic burden of it. I don't think they have a a clear answer of how to move forward yet, but uh, they're looking at a variety of different options. And, uh, uh, Sammy Sadik and Robbie Lindrum were just out with Austin, so maybe he can shed a little bit more light about what their thoughts were then. Yeah, they they are going to do a, a zone one with partial flow based off the dish of pressure. Um, their first study, I'm, I'm trying, I've been out, out there and trained with them. They've trained with me. I'm on my way back out next month and just in a couple of weeks to train with them again. Um, and their initial study is, is going to be an observational A-patient study um, with with a initial period of complete aortic occlusion and using distal pressure coming off into partial and rapid transport. Okay, so we've got the we've got partial ball. We've got the, we got UK buying in on this idea that we can use the distal perfusion. We've got some consideration that the flows might not be perfect, but but the, and you are we I guess both of you are also saying that this this asymptotic fall off of the blood pressure is quite abrupt and that is changing. As me, an emergency physician who's going to go into my shift later on today, and I'm going to potentially put in a Reboa catheter, how do I do this? Can you take me through how I functionally do this in a human today? Well, I can I can tell you how how they're going to do it in London, and how they're doing it in London is after they've spent a couple of years planning this, and we spent a lot of time figuring out how to like literally just like going through their kit, going through their setup every single step of the way. They're going to use an eight French sheath versus a seven French sheath, um, so that they can easily trans, more easily transduce the pressure distal to the balloon. They are using the Eurobo catheter, um, so it's going to be an eight French sheath and the common femoral. And obviously, we all know, you know, it, it common femoral is really, really important. Um, and then placement of the zone one, uh, placement of the Eurobo catheter into zone one. I think you go into complete occlusion. I would say. Um, for a good 10 to 15 minutes, that gives you that time to get initial hemodynamic stabilization. And you may get a little bit of clotting, right? So we've certainly seen this in pelvic injuries where, uh, um, you know, just the occlusion alone may lead to significant, you know, clot formation and stabilization. And then uh, you need to transduce your, your distal pressure um, as well as your proximal pressure. Initially, I will tell you that the, that, the London group was going to use the Centurion Compass device, which are these small, I don't know if you've seen them, they're these small little blood pressure transducers that you can just put on the end of, of a line and get a blood pressure. It just gives you a map. We've, we tried these a whole bunch and they clot really, really quickly, uh, because there's no flush line that's incorporated with them. Um, so, you know, I really recommend that anyone who's doing this just needs to get really, really proficient at setting up an art line. I think it's just part of it that you need to be able to set up your outline within kind of 30 to 60 seconds. 
have it flushed out, have it zeroed, get that distal pressure. Uh, and that can be happening while you have that period of complete aortic occlusion. And then you can start, you know, you can start coming off your balloon with very small 200, you know, like use a 3 3 cc balloon uh, syringe and maybe take out 250 microliters at a time um, until you start to see an improvement or an increase in your distal pressure. And I would say, you know, we shoot for in for a distal pressure that's 5 to 10 over what your occlusion pressure is. And we, you know, so it's a very small amount. It's just a little bit. Um, and then be ready to adapt. That's the most important thing is be ready to adapt. If your patient tolerates it well, then then bring that pressure up another five. And if you overshoot a little bit, then then bring it back down. But, um, you know, I think it's with an eight French and I think it's with not with a Centurion compass because I think they clot too quickly. But, you know, just set up two art lines and get your proximal and your distal pressures. Yeah, I think that's, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, mimics what uh, some of us are doing in the hospital, too. You know, we're doing uh, the same thing, kind of changing out 10 minutes of occlusion, 15 minutes of occlusion, you know, getting a, um, uh, a distal measurement off the, the side arm of the sheath and seeing what the flow is below, if possible. And some people are even, you know, if they don't do that, you know, they're using some sort of surrogate like a a Doppler signal, ultrasound Doppler signal on the opposite uh, femoral, which is is not n- not as great, but uh, a potential role for it too. But the other thing to really understand and drive home is that a lot of people think that you put a certain volume in and, and the balloon just uh, just uh, takes a certain shape, but the the tiny volumes in the balloon really change the shape of the balloon quite a lot and affect flow. And so that's the important thing, kind of taking tiny volumes out. Um, it's interesting because I've been working over the last year with the military folk as well, um, looking at moving this care far forward. And they've done this at uh, small surgical facilities as well, but they're looking at ways to kind of mitigate effect for um, you know soldiers injured uh, well away from uh the first point of surgical contact and looking at different ways. And they, they're still kind of looking at the uh, compass device, I think more from a, um, you know, you're less, less stuff to, for the, the folk to carry point of view. So it's because it's smaller and more compatible and seeing whether, you know, just uh, um, simple flushes with a, uh, with a saline syringe might be able to kind of get over that clotting problem or not. That's still a work in progress. So, and it goes back to, you know, what works in your environment and your system to be able to do it, although the principles overall seem to be mimicked with it in whichever environment you're in. I, I totally agree with that statement. I mean, if, if the compass is what you have, it's what you've got. We just found that when we're using them, we're flushing them like every 30 seconds, um, which then, which is hard. Uh, I mean, the other thing you can do is you can throw a compass on there and then just quickly pressurize your bag, you know, a pressure bag, throw an art line set up on flush it through and then just you know rely on that drip rate which is very you know that very slow drip rate to try to keep them clean um i think if you're going to go to that extent though you might as well just use the monitor you have if you have that monitor obviously now i I think it's important to say that um you know we've just talked about partial uh is there a role for intermittent um you know it hasn't been studied as much Uh, um all i can say is that when we do it we see profound increases in distal flow that's really, really rapid. Um, we see big, big fluctuations in blood pressure. Um, and we see just a little bit more edema in the intestines, in the, in the animals that get 
um, intermittent versus partial. Uh, but there, you know, there may be a place for it, right? And I don't want to say that there's not. And I think really where it is, it's that merging of the two, right? It's you're going to try to hit some sort of mark in your partial, and then you're going to you're going to see how the patient does, and you might let more out, might let some more blood flow pass, and then the, the patient gets a little sicker and you reinflate a little bit and, and you just try to you work with the patient and you work with the team that you have um obviously you want to get as much flow passed as you can while keeping the patient stable uh i mean that's always the goal and then so it's, it's a very dynamic process yeah I, I think just my mind goes to the idea of like man maybe we maybe we're actually making them worse I mean, we don't really have neurologic outcomes for this so I think the question will be at some point when we have enough data is whether intermittent is better than just, you know, letting the balloon stay up and deal with the consequences of the lower extremities later, uh, salvaging the brain. Yeah, I think there just it, we know that you're going to hit this. Uh, we know you're going to hit a point where your your ischemic perfusion is so great that, you know, it's not, you know, it's not survivable. I think we've seen that. Um, out of the early work out of Japan where you'd have, you know, limb loss, you had, you know, some really long occlusion times that people didn't survive. You know, there's a, there's a definitive point where, you know, you just can't go any longer without any blood flow distally. So um, I think it depends on what you need. I mean, if you are, if you're talking about trying to put this, do this pre-hospitally, if you're trying to do this uh, and it's going to take some time to get your definitive hemorrhage control, just leaving the balloon up uh, is probably not, you know, is just going to be detrimental. You got to you got to choose some way to try to reperfuse a little bit of the distal vasculature. Hmm. Yeah, but I think this um, this kind of leads on nicely because as we evolved with Reboa and uh, you know I've been uh, uh, harping about this a little bit for the last few years is that um, you know we are so focused on stopping the bleed and getting the balloon up, uh, and that's that was the big focus. Like as things came out and as we understand more, it um, you know going back to the system of care, not only do you need a surgeon to manage the definitive care um, in terms of stopping the hemorrhage, but I think you, we're uh, we really need to focus on the perioperative and early uh, intensive care of these patients and understand uh, you know how we need to modify things to. Uh, manage and mitigate some of the uh, consequences of these um, periods of uh, almost complete body occlusion. Um, and uh, we're moving more towards understanding that, but that needs uh, a concerted effort to educate those folks who are dealing with these patients on a more regular basis to look at what we need to do differently, you know, especially in the operating room, how to resuscitate these people and get them ready for uh, balloon deflation. And um, in the uh, ICU, um, looking at things, uh, you know, are we do we need to be more aggressive with renal replacement therapy? Do we, you know, how, um, you know, we need to be cognizant of uh, the limb ischemic complications and have protocols in place for that. And so it's a huge continuum of care that needs to happen. Um, and so we can't just keep focusing just on getting the balloon up and stopping the hemorrhage. It has to be the whole package. It sounds a lot like our uh, initial ECMO cases where we were just happy to get the yeah. catheters in. And now we've got this whole sophistication later on. Oh, this is this is really great stuff, guys. Any any last comments? 
think we're just uh, really looking for, uh, you know, I think we all understand that there is a need for Reboa and there is a patient who will, who would have otherwise died without getting Reboa in. Um, we're still uh, refining a little bit about who that patient is and we really, really need um, more kind of robust human data to kind of support all that we're doing, but we're getting there. There is a, uh, so just to put a plug in later on uh, in uh, November, there is the uh, Pan-American EVTM meeting coming up, which is going to be a great forum for uh, all things kind of endovascular trauma management uh, related people flying from uh, around the country and around the world. who are going to be sharing some data uh, on trials, um, including the uh, ABO uh, trauma registry, which is being carried out in Europe. Um, there is the UK Roboa trial, which is being led by Jan Jansen out of uh, University of Alabama um, with uh, folk in the UK. They've just recruited, uh, I think, their 52nd or 53rd patient just uh, in the last day or so. So there are people um, really making efforts to get um, more uh, data that's in humans that we can use to kind of better define our understanding of this. And uh you know, we might not have the magic bullet RCT that everybody wants. And, uh, you know, that's really difficult in, in trauma and with things like Roboa. But from uh, discussions like this that we're having on this podcast, from uh, information from trials that are coming out and meetings that are happening like this, we're, we're going to have our uh, kind of uh, best uh, available evidence uh, through everybody's group experience, I think, to guide us forward. I would I would just echo that I think we are um, a very, we're still very early on um, in in this research. We need as much human data as we can. You know, I, in general, the translational data is still very early as well, right? I mean, you can count that there is still you know only half a dozen papers on intermittent Reboa, right? We've written a couple dozen papers on partial flow strategies and. Um, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways and so, so many like innovative ideas about building better catheters and building, you know, automation and everything else that we're just really early on. I think it's very promising. Um, but I, I think right now I, I agree with Zach, you know, it's finding the right patients, it's finding the right techniques and it's going to take time. And, but I think it's an exciting, you know, I think it's, it's an exciting time to be part of the team, uh, that hopefully is rolling out, you know, new therapies that can save people's lives. So awesome. Thank you guys for, for what you do. Awesome. I mean, in the lab, your papers are amazing. This is, this is just the frontiers of medicine here. And Zaf, again, making it for all of our clinicians that we can actually do this. You guys are amazing. And Zaf, we just, uh, you know, one more thing. We just finished reanimate, uh, last month and yeah. uh, we have another one coming up in April, April 29th and 30th. We'll see you back out here in San Diego. The, it just gets better and better every time. And every time we've got this, the sophistication of the, of the attendees is, is amazing. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So, all right. So from ED ECMO, Zaf Kossum, Austin Johnson, thank you guys for joining us today. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank you very much.